you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Before we jump forward in time with the main character of the Twilight Zone that we're going to be discussing tonight, let's go back in time ourselves and see where we've travelled in time before in the show. And in particular, let's think about that Twilight Zone brand of cosmic justice and whether it's all present in those stories before. We'll start with the 16mm shrine. now. You could say it's not really time travel, she actually enters one of her movies, but in a sense there is that time travel element to it because it happened in the past. She travelled back in time to a time when she was happier. Now looking back now it's a bit of an odd one because she isn't the nicest of people, but in a way she is gifted a chance to go to a happier place. doesn't really fit with that usual brand of... Twilight Zone Cosmic Justice. Then we have the mighty walking distance, this time Martin Sloan, burned out, longing for times gone by, travels back to his hometown during a time when he was a child. I covered these episodes so long ago that I can't recall exactly what I said about them, but in this one it's like the Twilight Zone is giving him a chance to go back and enjoy that time and place but he steps over the line, he interferes where he shouldn't interfere. So the Twilight Zone slaps him down and chastises him for crossing that line. And he has a limp for the rest of his life as a result. So there is that element of cosmic justice there. Then we have Judgment Night, in which Carl Lancer is sent. Is it back in time, or is it kind of just a virtual construct of his past? But he has to experience his past from the perspective of the people that he killed. So this time that cosmic justice aspect is really very clear. In the last flight, Lieutenant Decker is given a chance for redemption, a chance not to be the coward that he had been and to make a difference and to save his colleague who then went on to live his life. In execution, a cowboy is brought from the past into the present with disastrous results and if I recall correctly, my interpretation of that one was that the doctor who brought him forward in time kind of gets punished for his lack of thought for what the consequences of that could be. So, all present and correct. Now the big tall wish, okay. Maybe Bowley Jackson not so much travels in time, but his timeline kind of unravels and he finds himself flat on his back in the boxing ring for not believing in the good-hearted magic gifted to him by the little boy. A stop at Willoughby? Mm, is that time travel? I'm not too sure about that one. That's a discussion in itself. Now King Nine will not return. Captain Embry travels back to the disastrous mission that he blamed himself for not being on, but it ends up that he hasn't really travelled in time, it's, it's all in his head. What is it? We have the trouble with Templeton, where Templeton travels back in time, and again we had some discussion about whether he actually had travelled back in time, whether it was ghosts of the past visiting him, but there's certainly a time travel element there and it was to kind of get him back on his feet, give him a, a bit more zest for life. So, so the Twilight Zone's given him a nudge in the right direction with that one. Now in back there, this is a pure time travel episode where Pete Corrigan travels back to save Abraham Lincoln, seemingly for the amusement of the Twilight Zone itself. In the Odyssey of Flight 33, a passenger plane moves through time for no real reason other than to become the basis of an urban legend. So in this one, the Twilight Zone is doing things really beyond our understanding. Then we have Static, where a radio broadcast shows from the past 
to make Ed Lindsay realise that he still has a life to live, and then he actually gets a chance to live it again when he's transported back into his younger self. So again, the Twilight Zone giving someone a leg up. So we've already had 12 episodes that have an element of time travel to them in the Twilight Zone so far, mostly by Rod Sailing, but there are also other writers there. And again, you could argue some aren't genuine time travel, but there's elements of it. And to the show's credit, at this point, we don't think, oh, here we go, another time travel story, because each has its own identity, each has its own reason or lack of reason for time travel to be there. Each time it's different, some are quite similar in some ways as we move through and into the future, but I think it's a real testament to the show that it can keep going back to the time travel well and pulling out something that we've not had before. So the question is, what is the reason for time travel in the episode that we're going to be discussing tonight? Well, let's find out when we go 100 yards over the rim. The year is 1847. The place is the territory of New Mexico. The people are a tiny handful of men and women with a dream. 11 months ago, they started out from Ohio and headed west. Someone told them about a place called California, about a warm sun and a blue sky, about rich land and fresh air. And at this moment, almost a year later, they've seen nothing but cold, heat, exhaustion, hunger, and sickness. This man's name is Christian Horn. He has a dying eight-year-old son and a heartsick wife. And he's the only one remaining who has even a fragment of the dream left. Mr. Chris Horn, who's going over the top of a rim to look for water and sustenance. And in a moment, we'll move into the twilight zone. First broadcast on the 7th of April, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Buzz Kulik. Buzz Kulik came to the Twilight Zone at the beginning of the second season and he did nine episodes up until season four. So we still have the mind and the matter, a game of pool, equality of mercy, Jesse Bell, and on Thursday we leave for home to come from him. Now I won't go too much into Buzz Kulik's bio as we have spoken about him before on the show. So let's talk about Sailing's open narration. Not shot on location, and I think the fast whip pan of the camera is usually an indicator of that, where they're disguising the fact that he's not actually there with this quick camera movement, and then we see him in some kind of mock-up of the set. You know, it would have been nice to see him there, sitting on the back of one of the wagons or something, so not a great opener, but that's the way it goes sometimes. He couldn't be there all the time. Now, the first draft of Sailing's script had it set in Arizona, but by the time he composed the trailer, it was in Northern California. Perhaps this was because they decided to film in Lone Pine, California, so they also the script to suit? Maybe. In this second season, we've already had to endure the cost-cutting with the videotapes episodes, but in order to save money on this one, the episode was filmed back-to-back, with the episode that we'll be discussing next time, the Rip Van Winkle caper. So they were both filmed in the same location. Now, as far as trivia goes for this one, I'm afraid that's pretty much it. Both the Twilight Zone companion and unlocking the door to a television classic really only have quite thin entries and what does exist mainly focuses on Cliff Robertson's hat. So you can look forward to much hat related trivia shortly. So our setup here is that Christian Horn, his wife Martha Horn, and their young son have headed for California and are navigating the desert in New Mexico. But things aren't going well, their son is sick, he has a fever that they can't control, and supplies are running low. As Rod Sailing says, the main character, Christian, is the only one who seems to have any spirit left in him, and he goes ahead, a hundred yards, over the rim of a sand dune, to try and find water, but he finds himself in what was then the present day. Beautiful use of location here, you know, great music in the episode too. I don't really mention the music much, but uh, sometimes it kind of jumps out at me, and this time it does. We have the, the wide shots of the solitary figure of Christian walking across the barren desert, 
until he comes to a tarmac road, something that he will have never seen. And then he sees something else he's never seen, a huge truck hurtling down the road, which causes him to jump out of the way, accidentally shooting himself in the arm with his gun. Did you see it? See what? That thing, that, that, that monster-like thing that came at me. Monster? It almost, almost hit me. Oh, mister, I never saw anything. Oh. If there was anything, never got to hear. Oh, no. It was just a, a mile or two down the road. You mean the truck? The truck? Are you all right? I mean, uh... How long have you been out there in the desert? Oh, well, almost a year. That is, almost a year since we left Ohio. One of the wagons was burned by the Indians and the other two went back. So after walking down the road for a while, Christian finds himself at a gas station and diner and we meet our other main character, Joe, played by John Crawford. Now, by this scene, I'm really quite hooked. I, I just love the setup, you know. The time travel happens. There's no real reason for it. It's got that really unique Twilight Zone strangeness that when it's done right, we don't need a reason for it. He just moves forward in time. We don't know how or why, but here he is. And I really enjoy how Joe is stood out there and at first he's kind of amused he he looks christian up and down and he gives this kind of little laugh he scoffs at him and how he's dressed but as christian starts to talk to him joe soon realizes something's not quite right with him so he takes him inside now a couple of things i want to touch on here as a brit who has had a lifelong love affair with the united states Strange as it might seem, I'm kind of interested in this gas station diner out in the middle of nowhere because it's something that you don't really see on our little island, you know. I'm just fascinated by a huge stretch of road where someone has said, I'm going to build a gas station there. Of course, it's probably needed because those roads could be very long and people might travel them all the time, but there's always going to be this level of risk. What if... A couple of people build other ones a few miles either side so people stop at those ones first and they don't stop at yours anymore what if someone builds a different route so nobody uses that one anymore and just being out there in such a remote location day after day i mean joe touches on it later on when he says that the restaurant isn't doing so good but the trucks are beginning to stop there so it's an aspect of america that i find strangely interesting now, the other thing is obviously John Crawford, who plays Joe. John was born in 1920, and he got into acting in that real hard-working way. First, he joined RKO as a laborer. Then he got a job building sets at the Circle Theatre in Los Angeles and convinced some of the producers to cast him in their plays. And from then on, he started to get work in the movies. He really was a very prolific actor, and he showed up in... Many favourites like The Poseidon Adventure, he was in The Old Adventures of Superman TV Show, The Untouchables, Wagon Train, The Fugitives, Star Trek, Lost in Space. He seems to have been in everything until he retired in the mid-80s, but hopefully had a happy retirement until his passing in 2010 at the age of 90. When Christian goes into the diner, He's still very cautious. He's looking round because everything looks very strange to him. Joe gives him a glass of water, which is probably the cleanest and best glass of water he's ever had in his life. And it's here that Joe and his wife Mary Lou try to get to the bottom of the mystery of who he is. And Joe quite innocently makes a grab for Christian's rifle. Well now, there's an old timer. <laughs> It uh, must be a real antique, huh? It's been used a lot. Well, this isn't hunting season around here. Mm. 
What about Indians? Indians? Well, we don't have any Indians. Well, at least ways not hostile ones, huh? <laughs> Like I said, not a great amount of trivia on this one, so I'll try not to just recount the story. So let's spend some time focusing on the actor who played Christian Horn, Cliff Robertson. In The Twilight Zone Companion, Buzz Kulik recalls, he came to me while we were rehearsing with an eight or nine page analysis of his character that he had written. And he said, will you read this and see if you agree or disagree, if there's anything you can add? Well. We used to do that when we were all kids just out of acting school, but very few people take the time to do it. Now normally for things of this time, he would have been portrayed as a cowboy, but director of photography George Clemens said, Do you remember he wore a big stovepipe hat? It was Cliff's idea, and I was so scared that we'd be laughed off the screen in the first scene. In fact, Rod was back in Interlaken, and I even insisted that Buck call him and talk to him. Comedy and drama are so close that if you step over one side, you get a laugh and you ruin the whole effect of the drama. But I was wrong and I was the first guy that admitted it. Cliff was a great guy and I thought he did a hell of a job. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Cliff Robertson says, After I read the script, I did some research on my character. What kind of clothes would I wear? What state I would have come from? and the people who went with me on the trek across the desert, and especially what motivated them to make the move. I showed up with a black hat because I read that those who moved to California wore only the clothes they could wear on their back. They wore used clothing if they could. Someone on the set wasn't happy with me wearing the hat, so they placed a call to Rod Sailing. He came and saw me wearing it and he loved it, so I got to wear it on the show. Now, whoever wrote his bio on IMDb says that he was a fairly successful leading man without ever becoming a major star. He did win a Best Actor Oscar in 1969 for his role in the film Charlie, but he seemed to just work, work, work without always being in the best quality stuff, which might have stopped him being a real A-list actor. And he himself admits it. In 1972, he said, Nobody made more mediocre films than I did, including Too Late the Hero, which he described as a bunch of junk. Now, Cliff Robertson didn't become a movie actor and stay a movie actor. Now, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there seemed to be a thing where some people would start in the movies and stay in the movies. Some would start in television and after some success there, graduate to the movies. And if they could become successful in films, then they would stay there. Now, if a movie actor went back to television, it was almost like admitting defeat or failure. Now, that's not so much the case these days because we're seeing a lot of movie actors doing television because the quality of television has really increased so much over the past few years. It's no longer the case that all the best stuff is in the movies. But Cliff Robertson would do whatever. He played a villain in the old Batman TV show. He did the soap opera Falcon Crest. So he did whatever he wanted to do. And I guess you have to give him credit for that. I guess these days, especially the younger audience, will most likely remember him for playing Ben Parker in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. One book that I don't think I mention often enough in the Twilight Zone podcast is a lovely book by Stuart T. Stanyard and it's a book of essays and interviews about the Twilight Zone and with people connected to the Twilight Zone. Possibly the last of its kind because unfortunately so many people have passed now but I do thoroughly recommend it and it's called Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone and like I said that's by Stuart T. Stanyard. And in that book of interviews, he interviews Cliff Robertson about this episode and the other Twilight Zone that he did, The Dummy. Now, Stanyard often asks in these interviews the question that we would all ask someone who knew Rod Serling back in the day. And he asks the question, when did you meet Rod Serling and what was your first impression of him? 
And he said, I had the highest regard for Rod. I talked with him on the phone before I ever met him personally. When I met him personally, face to face, it was very friendly. And he knew I'd gone to Antioch, which probably helped. He also seemed to like the fact that I was stage trained. He liked actors that had come from New York. One of the reasons I suspect was because he felt they were not just a pretty face, a haggard face. He liked the theatre and I always had a feeling that he maybe harboured an unadmitted desire to write for the theatre, but maybe wasn't quite ready for that quantum leap. That's nothing more than a guess. He was so supportive on that thing a hundred yards over the rim, he said, I do appreciate an actor who takes his work so seriously that he does his research and homework. Anyway, great guy. I just thought he was terrific. A man way ahead of his time, obviously. So for this episode, Cliff Robertson's character Christian is the central focus. He's the main man, and if he doesn't work, then the episode doesn't work. And I think he does a great job. He's very serious, he's very believable. It's quite a powerful central performance, and he brings a real gravity to the role. He has a real respect for the material too. And he plays that mixture of wonder, confusion and disbelief. Whatever you want to call it really well. Hey mister, where are you from? I mean really, where are you from? From? Yeah. I'm from Ohio. Ohio? I left the wagons on the other side of the rim. I came to look for water. Well, there's a natural spring just west of here. Spring? Yeah. And game? Well, uh, I guess so. Here, you, you take two of these and drink some water with them. What do you got there? It's penicillin. It'll keep away any infection. Where did you get it? drugstore. You feel all right? You say this is good for a sickness? Well, sometimes, depending on what it is. I've got a real sick boy back in the wagon. At the beginning, we spoke about why the Twilight Zone sends people through time. So the question is, why does it do it this time? What is that? That looks just like... Oh, God in heaven, how could that be? That says September 1961. When it's... 1847. So the reason for sending Christian forward in time seems to be twofold. First, it's to reinvigorate his spirit to show that there is hope, to give him strength to carry on and to be able to inspire the others to carry on too. And the other reason is we learned earlier that Christian's son is sick, but now in the future, Mary Lou introduces him to penicillin and he also finds out a bit more about his son in the future. I read this in the book. Encyclopedia. Horn, Christian Jr., M.D. Famous for his early work in childhood diseases, pioneer in vaccine research, born Meriden, Ohio, 1839, died Santa Barbara, California, 1914. That's my son. That's Chris. I may be crazy, or the world may be turned upside down, but I know that I've been put here for a reason. Often in time travel stories, there is some kind of paradox. Terminator is a great example. Kyle Reese goes back in time and fathers John Connor, but John Connor already exists within the timeline of Reese's life, so how could John Connor exist to send Reese back in the first place, and so on, and so on. It's kind of like a chicken and the egg scenario, which came first. So is there a paradox here? 
Well, Christian Sr. jumps forward in time and he gets the penicillin to cure his son, Chris Jr. And then he goes back in time and cures him. And this act may well be the thing that inspired Chris Jr. to then go on and be a doctor when he grew up, specialising in childhood diseases. But he may have done that anyway if he'd have lived, so we'll, we'll put that to one side. So we're not actually in a Terminator-style situation because Christian Sr. hasn't gone back into the past and triggered an event that had already happened. So where does that leave us? I guess the potential paradox is that Christian reads in the book that Chris becomes a doctor and lives a long life. But if he hadn't come to the future, then Chris Jr. would possibly have died and not become this great doctor. So I guess it's a matter of where your starting point is, what your perspective is that counts. Christian goes into the future to bring something back to his present, which has the potential to change their future. The one little wrinkle to all of this is that the future already records that Chris Jr. lived. Although things weren't looking good for him, Chris Jr. may have lived anyway and became this doctor, inspired by a terrible childhood illness that he had. If Christian had read a book that said Chris Jr. had died out there in the desert, then went back and changed that with the pills, then does that make a paradox? I'll be honest, at this point I don't know, because the more I talk about it, the more I'm confusing myself, so I'll let you make your own minds up on that one, but I'll come back to it briefly near the end. One of the pleasures of watching The Twilight Zone is we often see actors who would later in their career become big stars because of one thing or another, and sometimes we see them before they got to that level. People like William Shatner, he's the obvious one, but we also see Martin Landau, Art Carney, and in the future we'll see people like Dennis Hopper and Charles Bronson. And in this episode we get some actors in supporting roles who do go on to other things, some quite famous. Now John Aston appears briefly in a very small part with only a few lines at the beginning and the end of the episode. And this was a couple of years before he would find real success as Gomez Adams in The Adams Family. Then we have Edward Platt who plays the doctor who comes to speak with Christian and he's probably most famous as the chief in Get Smart. And then we have Evans Evans and that's the actress who plays Mary Lou and yes she has the same surname as her first name. She wasn't particularly prolific in her career, she only had 27 credits to her name and she retired in 1994. And her name didn't remain Evans Evans though because she became Evans Frankenheimer when she married the director John Frankenheimer. So back to our story, Christian Horn now seems very clear on what he has to do. He has his penicillin and he's going to go back over the rim hoping to get back to his own time. And I really like this scene, you know, it's a shame that Christian has to drive the butt of his rifle into Joe's ribs before he goes, but what can you do? The music builds up and Christian runs the mile or so that he'd walked previously as the police try and come to catch him. Then as soon as he does get over the rim, there's a silence and a smile creeps across his face because he realises that he's back in his own time. Martha. You ever get something, Christian? Where did you go? Where did we go? What do you mean, Chris? Where could we have gone? Well, all this time. All what time? Chris, honey, you just left a few seconds ago. Where did you forget? What's that? Here. Give him two of these tablets. I think it may save his life. So all is right with the world. Chris Jr. has his medicine and Christian has a renewed sense of purpose and it's all brought on by his little trip into the future. So I mentioned earlier about whether this is a paradox or not. On the one hand, young Chris may have survived on his own 
and still became that doctor but that would have rendered this trip to the future as pointless so i think obviously the intent of the story is that christian going forward in time is what saved young chris's life and allowed him to become this important figure and i like that it does fit with my view of the twilight zone as this universal force giving people who deserve it a lift in the right direction occasionally but this time it not only rewards christian for his drive and spirit it makes sure a person with great potential for good lives to do that good that twilight zone brand of justice is in full effect or is it the twilight zone in full effect well in his book rod sailing in the twilight zone Douglas Brody has a different thought on it. Brody's perception of this episode is very much that it's some sort of religious kind of allegory. He says Chris Horn will take ideas espoused by Jesus and carry them into the secular arena, making the real world a better place. Sailing himself fully subscribed to the values proposed by Jesus, and on more than one occasion, half kiddingly, described himself as a Christian with a small c. Zone was created by a Jewish author who did not absolutely accept the rising of Jesus on the third day after crucifixion. On the other hand, he fully subscribed to the values, peace, love and forgiveness preached by Rabbi Jesus. As to the resurrection or virgin birth, such events for him qualify as miracles, even as in Zone, a hundred yards included, events are indeed miracles for you, if you believe them to be precisely that. And he mentions, obviously, the, the people who run the diner are called Joe, Joseph and Mary. And he says, Horn hurries out to the desert and over the ridge, slipping back in time, rejoining the pioneers. Or, as they often choose to call themselves, pilgrims, given the penicillin, Horn's son survives as he must to fulfil his destiny, as written in the book at the diner and in the greater book of fate which history is predetermined. Yet this couldn't have happened if Horn hadn't exerted free will and wandered over the rim. God helps those who help themselves. So was that Rod Serling's intention that this be some sort of religious allegory? Well, possibly, you know, it could fit into that shape if, if you wanted it to doesn't really fit well with me though you know i prefer my twilight zone to be something other than that it's driven by a different kind of force that seems to be for good but also seems to be beyond our understanding sometimes and yes you know a religious person could say that obviously you know god works in that way too we don't understand his motives at times as well but I don't know. I'm not sure I really want religion in my Twilight Zone, to be honest, but we'll see whether it pops up again in the future. Now, I kind of feel like I've struggled to really say anything of much depth about 100 Yards Over the Rim, because not only was there only really hat-related trivia, but I do think it's a very simple story, but not in a bad way. It's a good, simple time travel tale that's bolstered by a really good performance by Cliff Robertson. On a personal level, I've mentioned in the past that there are certain episodes of The Twilight Zone that I really remember as a child, and this is one of them, so I do have a lot of nostalgic love for it too. It is really part of the fabric of my love for the show. I don't think I'd put it in maybe my top 10 or even top 20, but I do think it's a really good Twilight Zone that can hold its stovepipe hat wearing head high. Now, there are different approaches to time travel in entertainment, and I think that a thing has to work within its own rules. And I think this is where maybe the episode might divide some people, whether it works within its own rules or not. And I think it does, except for maybe one detail. Hey, Lou. This is Horn's rifle. What? I picked it up just where he dropped it. And hey, look at it, just look at it. It looks like it's been lying out in the desert for a hundred years. Yeah. What's it mean, Joe? Who was he? Where did he come from? 
think he went back to wherever it was he did come from. Because when we got to the top of the hill, he just disappeared. So why would the rifle age if Chris Horn has dropped it on our side of the rim, the side in our time? If he'd have dropped it on the other side and for some reason it had been left there, maybe it would make sense that when Joe picked it up, it had aged a hundred years. And if leaving the rifle in the present has this effect, would taking the pills into the past have some sort of effect on them too in some way? I don't know. And to be honest, I don't really care that much because the Twilight Zone has its own rules. And only one man really knows what they are. All right, boys. There's water up ahead and we're going to California. And my son's got a whole lot to accomplish there. A whole lot. Get him! Mr. Christian Horn, one of the hearty breed of men who headed west during a time when there were no concrete highways or the solace of civilization. Mr. Christian Horn and family and party heading west after a brief detour through the twilight zone. Let's hear some thoughts from listeners of the Twilight Zone podcast in Submitted for your approval. This is from a long-time friend of the show, Grace, and she says, A quick note on Long Distance Call. This is one of the most chilling episodes for me. It's darker than usual for a Twilight Zone episode, but also has quite a bit of heart to it. Admittedly, I tend to tear up a bit when the father is on the toy telephone reaching out begging for his mother to let Billy go. His utter desperation and his touching speech on how his son hasn't experienced much of anything yet, really tugs at the heart. An excellent episode all the way round. With the next episode, 100 Yards Over the Rim, this is one of my absolute favourite episodes, and is always on my marathon watch list. I've been fascinated with the concept of time travel since I was a small child. I would read and watch anything with a time travel theme I could get my hands on. There tends to be two kinds of time travel stories, one of circularity and one of change or flux. This is one of those perfectly circular time travel stories and it's a damn good one at that. The acting is fantastic, especially by the lead Cliff Robertson. He really is the star of the show, yeah I agree with that one. His character is sound and his reactions to the modern world seem genuine. We end up knowing why he was transported forward into the future, though you never find out the device or entity that has done this. The great thing is, it really doesn't matter in the end, it's left a mystery, and I really like that. This whole story is really about him staying strong for his company and his ill son, and the difference his son will make to this new world. Some people might think the pacing drags a bit, but I really don't feel that way at all. I think it logically builds to a good and touching conclusion. Awesome work on the show, Tom. Thanks for all your hard work. Well, thanks for listening, Grace, and thanks for sticking with me. And I agree with everything you say. You know, it's a, it's a really important episode to me and a, a good, a really good, strong Twilight Zone. So I'm glad you enjoyed it too. Now, this one is from another friend of the show, Chris Reeve. He says, hi, Tom. As I recall from time to time, you've mused about what a modern Twilight Zone film might look like. I thought that there are several movies made in the last few years which come close to fitting the mould of an extended Twilight Zone. Have you considered films from M. Night Shyamalan, such as The Sixth Sense, Signs and even The Village? These films combine a fairly light sci-fi fantasy element with strong characterization and a sense of deep humanity, and of course, a twist ending. Well. Absolutely, you know, I, I do remember, um, I think it might have been on the Signs DVD or one of his movies, 
He said his his whole thing was he wanted to make feature length episodes of the Twilight Zone. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. There are also some other films with somewhat of an everyman sci-fi fantasy bent with a similarly human feel. I'm thinking of films like Source Code or The Adjustment Bureau or possibly The Truman Show, all of which seem thematically and plot-wise like an extended Twilight Zone episode. Source Code is a little like the season 4 time travel episode where our man goes back in time to prevent disasters in no time like the past. The Adjustment Bureau is reminiscent of an episode from the new Twilight Zone series in the 80s, a matter of minutes, and the Truman Show seems like an expanded version or alternate take on a world of difference. The list could be expanded further. Groundhog Day is similarly Twilight Zone-ish with its theme of inexplicably repeating the same day. Perhaps contact with Jodie Foster could be seen as an alien first contact tale that would be largely at home in the Twilight Zone. Similarly, Interstellar, while perhaps more ambitious than any Twilight Zone episode, is certainly at home amongst the themes of Dimension X and plays with similar themes of space travel that pop out throughout the run of Twilight Zone. If the list gets too long, I suppose there would be problems, but the above list in my mind represent fairly good examples of a modern day Twilight Zone film. Keep up the good work, thanks Tom, regards Chris. Yeah, absolutely Chris, you know, I agree, and if you go back to the interview I did with Mark Zickery uh, way back when, he pretty much said the same thing, you know, they may not be called Twilight Zone, but they are Twilight Zone, and you know, it's a nice collection, you know, putting all those together uh, under the Twilight Zone banner, I absolutely agree. Now our friend Tyler Evans, who we've heard from before, said, Hello again Tom, I want to contribute my thoughts regarding the Long Distance Call episode. This is without a doubt the teasy episode that gets the most visceral sensation of fear out of me. I definitely remember that butterflies in your stomach feeling when I realised the grandmother was trying to get the child to commit suicide. I was shocked that this was allowed during the show's original run. I know from my own experience that the love a grandmother has for her grandson can be extreme and it's sometimes borderline obsessive. I know that any time my wife and I come to either of our parents' homes, that our kids are definitely the centre of attention and make them feel more alive and purposeful. So the premise of the grandmother is definitely real. However, it soon realised that the grandmother's love for her grandson seems to be more about fulfilling her own needs to be relevant and needed again. What makes it even more sinister is that we really don't know exactly where the grandmother is calling from. I'm sure most people assume she is calling from heaven, which one could say that she wants her grandson there to experience this paradise with her forever. What if she's not in heaven? This takes much more sinister and sociopathic connotations from the grandmother because she would rather her grandson be in a purgatory or hellish scenario just so she won't be alone. I actually have only watched the episode once because of how much of an effect it had on me, but in a way I believe that says a lot about the episode and how everyone involved did a great job presenting it to the world. Thanks again for your hard work, Tom. Tyler. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a very visceral episode in that regard. And like I said last time, I was quite shocked by it too that they actually got away with this. So thanks for your feedback, Tyler. Now, we haven't had any mp3 feedback for a while and longtime friend of the show gus is here to rectify that so let's have a listen to what he's got to say hi tom gus here again from across the pond i was just listening to your podcast about the episode long distance call one i think most people would agree definitely marks the height of the videotaped episodes. Um, this episode was always a favorite of mine growing up, but for some reason didn't really seem to hold up for me upon a recent viewing. I think maybe that's just because it doesn't really contain much in the way of a morality message. At its heart, I guess it's just a supernatural tale, and you know, that's fine. There's there's plenty of Twilight Zones that don't have a preachy ethical statement to make, but I don't know. I guess as I get older, I tend to appreciate the ones that do have the preachy ethics included a little bit more, but all that aside, the thing I found fascinating about your recent podcast was the strange inconsistency of the statements made in the past, not only by Bill Idelson uh, regarding who actually wrote that final speech made by Billy's father, but also by Bill Moomy himself. 
In your show, you quoted Bill Moomy from The Twilight Zone Companion where he remembered shooting the episode and floating in the water on camera and how he was a real good swimmer back then and all that. But after listening to the podcast, I actually decided to watch the episode again, uh, which is often my custom. And I noted that there was a commentary track uh, recorded back in 2005 for the definitive edition, I believe, with uh, with Bill Moomy and Bob Idelson. So I turned it on, and I got to hear a slightly different iteration of the story in Idelson's own words. Well, we just got one change from Rod, and that was the in the last speech. I remember that very well. Do um, you? We stopped taping, and everybody took a break. And I don't remember if it was mm, probably a good hour or so. And... And Mr. Serling was on the set. I think he was with Charles Beaumont. No, I was with Charles Beaumont, rewriting the last speech. But we hardly rewrote it. It was hardly anything, but uh, he said that it was fine. We just kind of stopped production for a while, and uh, it wasn't too long. And the... uh, the last speech where the father's talking to his mother right. on the t- right. when he hears her, give him back, give him... Yeah, you know, he, yeah. Uh, they rewrote that, or yeah. you guys rewrote that. Yeah. And uh, we went back, and it's great. So not too different from what Idelson said to Mark Scott Zacree, but interesting to hear it from the horse's mouth, I guess. Uh, Mumi also recounted a very different story to the one he told Zacree about swimming in the pond and all that. But I can remember taping this very, very well. Do you? Yeah, I really can. I mean... Were you actually in the pool there? No, my mom, would, they wanted me to be in the pool, and my yeah, mom he, wouldn't let me do it. I don't blame her. So, anyway, I just found those differences interesting. I think it's probably not uncommon for folks, actors especially, to reimagine history if it makes for a better mythos, but, you know, who knows. One other little aside, uh, back in the earlier days of the internet, I used to sometimes seek out props and prop replicas for different shows and films, and I I thought the plastic toy telephone from this episode would look great on a shelf, so I did some research and came across a Twilight Zone prop-related website that said this toy phone was produced by a company called Ideal back in the 50s and 60s. Apparently they came in two colors, black, which was the only one I was ever able to find, and a red and white model, which is the one they actually used in the show. Well, flash forward a decade or so, I actually had a run-in with Bill Moomy at a Comic-Con somewhere here in the States, and I got him to autograph my toy telephone, which, in a life full of nerdy moments, might have been the nerdiest of all. But it was awesome. He was actually a great sport and talked to me for quite a while about the episode and the phone itself, which he was actually shocked when he saw just how small this toy phone was in his now giant adult hand, you know. Uh, he even took a few moments to recall some of the lines from the show and kind of goofily reenacted them to the uh, happiness of those of us who were gawking around. But uh, he was really pretty cool and... Uh, I now have a great conversation piece on my shelf, thanks to Billy Moomy. I even snapped a photo of him holding up the tiny autograph phone and posted it on my Facebook, which he somehow saw and replied to, so gotta love the internet. Well, that's it for me. If anyone is interested in that website where I found info about the toy phone, I was actually surprised to find that it's still up. It's called the Twilight Zone Archives. It's at twilightzone.org. And it's definitely an antique-style website, as websites go, but not without some great info. Uh, So I hope you and your listeners check it out. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for everything you do, Tom. Till next time. See, this is why I love getting audio feedback, you know, getting other people's voices on the show, like Gus there. You know, nice change from me just droning on for an hour or whatever. And what, what great information there. I think you've really added something uh, to to what I did on the last episode. So thanks for that. You know, it's fascinating. And you mentioned the commentaries there, and I really want to thank you for including those clips because I don't actually listen to the commentaries before I do an episode, and there's probably a ton of stuff in there that I could get out of them, but I kind of feel like, in a way, I'm commentating the episode too, and it would be very easy to just fall into the same pattern that they do and and use the same trivia. So I try and sort of stay away from that. So 
thanks for bringing those up after the fact because I, I think you know it, it really just complements uh, everything from the previous show so thank you Gus I really appreciate that now if you want to get your thoughts on the show the best thing to do is email me at tom at the twilight zone podcast.com um, there is a contact form on the website but unfortunately it seems to throw everything into my spam box and I do check it but I'm kind of afraid that it will I will miss things before they get destroyed sometimes so you know email is always the best way to go and if if someone has sent um a, an email and I've not read it then it's probably got lost in the spam box so I do apologize now a thank you for a new iTunes review RW York PA82 uh left a very kind review on the US iTunes and he says he's been with me from the beginning so thank you for sticking with me this long because it has been a long time you know I'm really going to try and gear up for another run at uh, getting some episodes out quickly so thanks for that but also I've got 88 reviews on there now and it would be really nice to get to 100 so if you like the show and you enjoy what I do if maybe you could go to iTunes and place a review get me to that 100 mark i would really appreciate it and in this time of you know many many twilight zone podcasts out there it really helps kind of to to stay up if you like and and keep the show going because you know unfortunately i don't get them out as regularly as as the other podcasters do so it's easy to slip behind but you know i've got a great audience you've been with me this long and uh and i want to thank you for that So next time we are talking about the Rip Van Winkle caper and I will speak to you then.